Wow, what a year it's been. It's going to take a lot to recap everything that's happened. Lucky for us, I've enlisted some help from International Tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink. This one's going to be a good one, so pay attention, you'll flink, and it'll be over. Hello everyone and welcome to Hold On To Your Racket, the podcast for Gen Z tennis fans. We're your hosts, Shravya and Josefina. Josefina and I are so excited to be creating this podcast and sharing our love for tennis with you all. Shravya and I are two high school gals and tennis fanatics united together by our on-the-court and off-the-court companionship. And we're the female Gen Z voices in modern-day tennis you've been looking for. So we hope you enjoy this episode and stay tuned for more. All right. So hello, everyone. This is episode 80, our ATP season recap episode. And we're very excited to be on the podcast today because it's not just me and Josefina, but we also have a very special guest with us. So Hall of Fame tennis journalist. Yes, you heard that correct. Uh, Steve Flink is joining us today. Um, A little bit of info about him. Uh, Steve started his tennis journalism career in the 1970s, working with legendary tennis icon Bud Collins, who you all probably know of, um, and by joining the World Tennis Magazine. And since then, he's worked in senior positions at Tennis Week and the Tennis Channel website, and also authored several books, including The Greatest Tennis Matches of the 20th Century, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and most recently, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. And fun fact, Josephina and I, although we have never seen Pete Sampras actually in action on the tour because he was a bit before us, for some reason, we always feel like if we were part of that more vintage era of tennis, he would have been our favorite player. Um, So we're very happy about that. And Steve has also done work for on-air broadcasting as well, and is the co-host of the Courtside with Balance and Tennis podcast which is part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. So welcome, Steve. Shrava, thanks for that. That was a terrific introduction. I, I hope I can live up to that kind of a billing, but thank you for so thoroughly describing what I've done. Yeah, so, I mean, now that we've gone over the facts, we can get into how you feel about tennis journalism. So when and how did you get into tennis or tennis journalism on its own? It, it sort of evolved because I was a, such a big fan. As a, it, I, I, it, it really all goes back to sort of one big moment when I, my father took me out to Wimbledon. I was 12 years old. It was 1965. And I'd seen a little tennis on television prior to that and played for a few years. But that, that, that day, that first day at Wimbledon in 65 got me hooked on the game. By three years later, I knew I had the goal of becoming a tennis reporter. And gradually, I started meeting players, meeting other writers, corresponding with other writers. And by the time I was 22, uh, having done some uh, behind-the-scenes work with the likes of Bud Collins and John Barrett and others, I was able to get a full-time job at World Tennis Magazine. So it was a pretty swift evolution for me and fortunate one it was also a time when the game was really starting to explode with popularity so I think my timing was was excellent yes so what do you think has been your greatest accomplishment well that's that's, it's very tough to look at your own you try to examine your own body of work and determine that I just say that maybe the enduring passion I have from the game the fact that I feel I have as much energy and excitement doing it as I did at the outset and I'm going to be 70 years old in June so 
I'm proud of that, proud of the longevity and what I believe is a, the consistency of my work. I, I believe I've, I've tried to set high standards all the way through and I hope I've achieved it. Yeah. So, I mean, we of course understand about that because we're also pretty young and trying to get into tennis journalism ourselves. And um, we've actually been discussing how since Shravi is going to college next year, how we're going to keep up this regime. So it's definitely interesting how it kind of evolves as you go. And speaking of evolving, how have your views shifted as ATP tennis has transitioned, you know, gone through different eras, for example, pre-Big 3 to Big 3 to now? So how have you dealt with that? Well, I think there's always been, that's a good question. I've always, I've enjoyed each year. We had this era in the 90s, you referred to, Shrava referred to to my Pete Sampras book earlier and Pete, of course, was his decade was the 90s. And that was a that was what we call the greatest American generation, because it was not only Pete, but Andre Agassiz. You had Sampras with his 14 majors, Agassiz with his eight, Jim Currier winning four, Michael Chang winning one. And they they really were the dominant figures of that decade and that era. So and yet there have been many other times when the pie has been sliced a little bit more evenly across the board and and you haven't had dominance. And I think we may be heading into that period mm-hmm. once Novak realizes all of his ambitions over the next couple of years. I think we'll reach a period where there will be some years where we'll have three, maybe four different winners among the men uh, at the majors. Entirely possible. Certainly three. And, and I think that could go on for a while. Not that I don't think Zarev and Medvedev team, there's so many, so many great players emerging and ready to explode, but I don't know whether they're ever going to be able to dominate the way these three guys have. I would add just one thing. We've been spoiled because Federer won his first major in 03, uh, Nadal in 05 at Roland Garros. And then of course, Djokovic got his first one in Australia in 08 and they've kept on keeping on as the expression goes and it's astounding what they've done the standards they've set the excellence they've exhibited so it will be hard when they're gone however i do think there are guys ready to step forward the the aforementioned people and i think the game will will still i don't i don't worry about any lack of interest in the game or any lack of you know I, i don't worry about not having compelling people to write about All right. Now, before we get into the tennis, we have one sort of last question to round out this part of the conversation. So Josephina and I, we are obviously the newest generation of tennis fans, super excited to see, as you said, how the sport evolves. So what would you sort of tell this younger generation about what should they be looking out for in the coming years of the sport? And if they, too, want to get into tennis journalism or just you know, explore their passion for the sport. How can they do that in these coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess back to my start and and in my days, keep in mind that it's changed so radically from that time because there was typewriters, there were newspapers and magazines, there were no websites back then. It was a different world of tennis journalism. And frankly, I think in some ways, is smaller, more intimate, and, and perhaps if you made your mark a, a bit easier to do it because, for instance, when I walked into the press rooms at Wimbledon or Forest Hills, where it was in those days for the U.S. championships, you, after a certain point, you knew everybody pretty quickly. Uh, it was a, it, and so it was easier to establish yourself. Now it's a wider world, and obviously we're living in the, 
the era of the of the internet and a lot of fragmentation that way, a lot of people trying to get involved. However, I still think it comes down to knowing your stuff. And I, I, you two clearly do. You, you know, uh, it, it, that, that, that's the starting point. If you don't know what you're talking about and you don't have a sort of almost an all-consuming passion for it, then I don't think it works. But if you do, I think that can carry you almost anywhere you want to go. And uh, so I that's how I would encourage any young aspiring journalist like the two of you to not get discouraged by that. There's so many avenues, so many websites, so many possibilities to establish yourself at, as premier tennis journalists. And, and uh, I, I think I, I, I would only in, encourage everyone to, to keep that in mind. And I think social media has changed so much of that landscape too. I mean, I don't know how that's influenced your work in tennis journalism, because that's certainly a new advent, but have you seen sort of social media change the way that you have to go about covering the sport? Yeah, it has. I have to admit, I would say if, if I was going to be self-critical, I really, I've, I've had a tough time adapting to the Twitter world. I, I think there's a lot to be said for it. And when you say social media, that's the first thing I think of, because so many people in the sport put out co uh, tweets constantly. What I find is that the Twitter world is complicated in the sense that if somebody disagrees with you, they don't do it very agreeably. Yeah. And I'll give an example, one year at Wimbledon, I I watched a match between Serena Williams and Camilla Georgie, and it was fascinating because it was one service break in each set, and and that was so unusual for women's tennis that the, the players excel on the return of serve, and you usually see more service breaks. So I put out a tweet saying, "Wow, was that was so refreshing to see Serena." This match coming down to one break it reminded me of a men's match. Well, I got attacked because they they thought they saw that as chauvinist. I didn't, and I then explained in a follow-up tweet, I did not mean that as a put-down in any way. I, it was a distinction that that's not the way women's matches usually play out, and therefore this one was was really fun to watch because of the fact that it came down to one break in each set, and so that the the nature of the match, and that often would happen among the men. So that kind of thing I think happens too much on Twitter. However, I think it's also a great opportunity for people to express their views and come in and in a succinct way, uh, add something to the conversation of tennis. And so I, I'll, for me, I'll admit it's probably a weakness in the sense that I'm, I'm inclined to sort of shy away from it. Uh, I should, I should go on a lot more than I do, but I think for all young journalists like you, I mean, obviously it's a, a terrific way to sort of, gain a following and make people pay attention to you gain and earn their respect through your brief comments on Twitter. But of course, that's such a departure for me as someone who grew up in magazines and then moved on to websites and is used to writing in the longer form. I love the longer pieces. So it's, it's always been a tough thing to adapt to having to keep it down to whatever it is, 140 words, to whatever. It's so brief uh, that I, I find it difficult, but I do think most people use it very effectively in sports to convey their knowledge and, and expose that to others. And, and, and perhaps that can lead to, you know, other work in the industry, which is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like social media has definitely played a huge part in, you know, expanding the um, fields of tennis and tennis journalism because people can um, reach that information so much more easily than, for example, reading a longer article. If you see like a two-sentence tweet, you would rather read that 
for example, especially now in the digital age, than a longer article for like the average tennis fan. Let me, sorry to interrupt. You're saying that the, the, the attention spans are shorter, right? I mean, I don't mean that. I don't really mean that uh, critically. I just, I'm asking. Yeah, I think I would definitely agree with that statement because like we said, um, especially as we're coming into this like younger generation of tennis fans with all these new apps, you know, like TikTok with the shorter videos that is now preferred over YouTube, which would have been longer videos. Everything is kind of shortening and um, condensing. And honestly, if you can um, adapt your kind of form, your style to that, it's it's important to kind of, um, you know, like remember that the younger generation of tennis fans is kind of like on that level now and of course it's sad because we try to you know we have this long podcast and sometimes they're 45 minutes or an hour and we love doing it because like you said like we have that burning passion for tennis but we're trying to reach out to that you know other half of tennis fans the more average younger generation of tennis fans and kind of just try to see what they want when it comes to tennis journalism and covering the sport don't you feel though it's interesting what you're saying i i feel like I don't know what you two have experienced in terms of the feedback on your podcast, but I think what's great about the podcast is that, as you say, they can go 45 minutes to an hour, but somebody doesn't have, it's not like they have to sit by their radio. Right. Right. When I used to listen to the radio, sometimes I don't want to get out of my car because I'm listening to satellite radio and there's something on there that's, that's really, uh, has me thoroughly immersed. And it's like, Oh my God, this is going to go 24 minutes. I'm going to have to shut the car off. I wish I could hear the end. And with a podcast, they can listen to it in in you know in twenty minute bursts if they want, which right. I think is. True. They also, I think you, looking at the two of you, it's also a chance for people that know your work, for to hear you be more much more expansive than you can ever be in a tweet or or a short video. So I, I, that's what I love about the podcast is that they are expansive, and they they can be a lot more informative because it's so in depth, and yet somebody doesn't have to hear it or all at once. Right. I think like going forward, just in terms of like appealing to this newer generation of fans, as well as the old guard, I think tennis and sports in general really has to deal with this balancing act of like, how can we leverage social media as well as like these, like, you know, articles and the more traditional form of journalism. But I feel like, as you were saying, multimedia journalism is going to be a huge kind of middle ground to sort of reach this, this, this uh, fan base, for sure. All right, so Josefina, you want to tell us about where we're going to be heading into now in terms of our little tennis talk section? Yeah, so now that we've covered, you know, that general aspect of tennis journalism, we're going to talk about the actual ATP 2021 season. And we call this segment on the podcast Tennis Talk. We like our alliteration on the podcast. And we're going to move through this um, chronologically. So we're going to talk about some major headlines, you know, of course, tennis. But um, starting off, actually, we're not going to be talking about ATP. We're going to be talking about something that has been a major topic in the tennis world recently, especially on the WTA side. But honestly, it should be a major topic on all um, platforms, um, and that is Peng Shui. Yeah, so she was actually recently interviewed by a, a, a Chinese-based 
uh, or Singapore-based uh, Chinese newspaper in Singapore. Um, and she was interviewed by them just a couple days ago and said that she was never sexually assaulted. She refuted the reporter's questions about whether or not she is free and said that her social media post about her um, sexual assault allegations was misunderstood. So basically she retracted all of her previous claims, which was indeed very suspicious after a lot of concerns from the WTA, the general media, the general public about her safety and about um, the Chinese government and Chinese media's involvement in her uh, in her personal life ever since she came out with those allegations. So Steve, we wanna ask you, since you know, you've been in the sport for so long, when you heard about this story, um, I mean, what were your thoughts? I mean, certainly there is a lot of context there with the Winter Olympics coming up as well and that playing into the politics of the whole thing. Um, but what were your thoughts about how the WTA has handled it so far with Steve Simon taking that really firm stance and pulling WTA out of China? And should the ATP tour and the ITF also be taking as firm of a stance? Yeah, you got to just, you, you, you summed it up beautifully, Shravya. Your name is so hard to pronounce. You have to forgive <laughs> me. No but, worries. Uh, no worries. But anyway, yes, you've got to the crucial points. Steve Simon exhibited some of the boldest leadership I've ever seen in 50 years of being around this sport, going back to my days as a fan. I, I thought it was so exemplary because he was so unequivocal from the very outset. And he knew his emails were not getting returned. Then the Olympic Committee got involved and claimed that they, they, they seemed satisfied with a little video or two that they did with, with Pung. And I, it, it's all very suspicious to me. And I read the story, I read the account that you just described of her latest interview, and I, I, I remain deeply concerned. It, does, it just doesn't sound real to me. It sounds as if she's been silenced. And sadly, I don't know what Simon and the WTA can do past a certain point. I think he's been wise to threaten no, no WTA events in 2022. And I, again, I thought that was a, a phenomenal stance to take and, and courageous. Uh, I've been very disappointed that uh, I thought the ATP response was, was meager, was weak. Uh, I was surprised that they would take a stance saying essentially, well, we're going to sit back and see how this evolves. And I, I think they should have been right on the heels of the WTA making the same threat of canceling any of their events for next year and the ITF as well. It should be a united front. I, and I hope that Simon can bring that about. And my worry is if she continues to do interviews like this one today and keeps denying it, what are we gonna be able to do? It's, it's one of the most disturbing stories in tennis in a long time. And it, and it appears to me that she must have been under some kind of threat of, of silencing that, that you surely knew. She surely knew what she was doing when she made the original charge. Now, why is she backing off? I don't have the answer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I feel especially now the ATP should be taking action, some sort of action against the situation because we're going to reach a point where we're kind of in too deep and she's made too many claims completely just disregarding the statements she made before where we're not really going to be able to do anything. So if, if there's any time to take action, it's definitely now. Yeah. And I, I was surprised because I thought that Steve Simon, uh, by taking that stance, gave the ATP cover. They just yeah. would following yeah. in footsteps. And instead they took a very, very timid stance and, 
disappointing in my in my for my way of thinking. And it's interesting because you see that Novak Djokovic is doing all he can to start a new player association. And I I wouldn't think that that Djokovic or any of the other he was one of the people very out front on this, speaking up on her on Pung's behalf. And I think it should be an all united tennis players front and tennis administrators as well. So far, we haven't seen that. And it's too bad to see Simon and the WTA stuck on something of an island when when they that should not be the case at all. Mm -hmm. They should on the same platform together. Certainly ATP players like individually, as you said, have spoken out like Josefina and I were talking about in our last episode about Nicolas Mahout. He has done a lot about speaking out about this situation. So it's it seems kind of more like it's their their hands are tied with the ATP is not going to take anything, any sort of firmer position. Yeah, I hope that maybe in time they will. But of course, it doesn't help. It's, it's, a, it's such a shame. We don't know all the reasons. We can't know exactly what was said to Peng Shui, but I think she, if she, again, I'm, I'm very concerned if she does some follow-up interviews and says essentially the same thing and walks away from the, what were obvious serious charges and ones that she could never have made cavalierly. She surely knew at the time how serious it was, what she was, the, the, the stance that she was taking, what she claims was done to her. And now to see this kind of about face is, it's it, it fills me with deep dismay. Definitely. Um, so, of course, that was an important topic to discuss since it's been so it's been everywhere recently, even on mainstream news, not even just tennis media, which is honestly really good to see that it's expanded um, past just, for example, Tennis Channel or ESPN and other um, sports broadcasters. But now we're going to get into the ATP season. Um, and we're going to start with the Australian swing. So, of course, we remember all the COVID politics that went into the preparation for the tournament, even during the tournament, the hard quarantine, the upcoming and even the upcoming vaccine mandate in Australia and players speaking out about isolationism and how that affected their tennis. So how do you think the pandemic in general has affected your coverage of the sport? Oh, uh, quite deeply. I mean, for instance, I, you know, I'd been to every Wimbledon from 1977 on through 2019. And then of course the tournament gets canceled in 2020. And then last year I didn't go because there was going to be such severe restrictions that it, it almost made more sense for me to cover it from home since I couldn't be guaranteed to get into courts. They were terrific about it. Very honest in their communication with us about what the rules were going to be, but it, it seemed to make no sense to go. So, and I think a lot of reporters have been in that boat having, we've had to do much more from home. Fortunately, the TV coverage and the, uh, and the online accreditation has allowed us to still be able to do it as thoroughly as possible, but there's no doubt it, 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 at least we've had that option for the players. It, I think it's much more difficult. You know, they have to decide, are they going to make the commitment to go and compete and in many cases do the quarantine and 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 then it has to be a big kind of psychic blow to them to have to compete under those circumstances sometimes with scant crowds or no crowds you alluded to it i mean for instance there was one moment was fascinating in the in the middle of the australian last year where djokovic is playing taylor fritz and the crowd had to leave remember mid yeah 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 yes yes and then they finished the match. Djokovic was able to cut, hold on and win in five sets after having won the first two. And he 
screamed out. I, I mean, he just, you could have probably heard him in all the way from Melbourne to Long Island. New York. So, and it was utter relief, but also was this strange feeling again of having been performing for an audience who had to leave because of the, of the curfew and, mm -hmm. and dealing with COVID. And that's, that's the era we are now living in. I think the, the U S open was spared more than any of the others. They set up their rules, which you could say was, was sensible or not, but, but they had full crowds and, and you didn't have these curfews. And, and that was the one that was probably least restricted in all the last year, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because you're talking about Australia. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, but you're right, because we've definitely seen how um, not having fans have has affected players, for example, especially like uh, Gael Monfils spoke out about it because, he, you know, he's a player that really plays for the crowd, you know, all of his trick shots and highlights. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. He's a performer. He's first and foremost a performer, sometimes to his own detriment. But you're right. And and it's some it's part of the it's part of the joy of being an athlete is you know, you're out there and the crowds inspire you to do things that even you didn't think were possible. So I, yeah, I have great sympathy for them. I also have great admiration for the way all these players, all of them have adjusted and dealt with it and still managed to bring out. I mean, I think back to the 2020 U.S. Open when there were no crowds, none whatsoever, and, and they had to play the whole tournament devoid of fans and there were and there were some really first class matches despite that and the players still lifted themselves and elevated their games under the worst possible circumstances mm -hmm. well of course you know it's been difficult for especially the players but not all of them have really gone silent about the situation so they really felt like through the continued pandemic era of tennis in 2021 and even beyond that like politics really came alongside it like when it came to bubbles or vaccine mandates and you know quarantines and things like that players have definitely done their part in speaking out against it even even if it's not really the best decision yeah i mean they've, they've done their best and they, they speak out but it's not entirely in their hands you know and they yeah. i mean that's what we're talking about with the upcoming australian and and the speculation at this point about whether Djokovic will be there or not. It, it really comes down to decisions they make personally, whether they're going to meet the standard and be able to go over there and, and play. And uh, I, I have sympathy to both sides because the players have grown accustomed to doing it a certain way their entire lives. And suddenly their world has been turned upside down. And yet the administrators have to make decision, decisions based on health and the well-being mm -hmm. of everybody. Yeah. Very tough scale very tough to balance. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of Djokovic, in fact, at this year's Australian Open, he won his record-breaking, well, I mean, he already had the record, but it was his third consecutive title, um, his ninth overall Australian Open, defeating um, Daniil Medvedev in the final in three pretty brutal sets. So kind of this whole year, the whole talk has been um, Djokovic kind of solidifying his place as the GOAT in men's tennis. Um, a lot of people say his French Open victory this year really solidified that. Um, however, we wanted to ask you that, do you think that that was established even earlier? Like for example, here or earlier than that, or was it really that French Open win that was the ultimate kind of stamp of approval? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm a, I, I admire him immensely. And I think when all is said and done, the prevailing view will be that he is the greatest of all time based on record, because obviously we can never put the 
greats of one era against the greats of another and settle it on the court. I mean, for instance, that's an area where I think Sampras would do extremely well is uh, if, if you could transport him into the and put everybody in a time capsule. But that's another discussion. Uh, I think that you, you alluded to something important there at, at Roland Garros because that meant Djokovic was the first player in the open era to win at least two at every major among the men. Uh, you know, Rafa has not been able to pull it off so often in, in contention in Australia. So Rafa has only one Australian. Roger has only one French. And here was Novak winning his second, his second French to mean he has at least two, a set of at least two at all four. That's a big, that was a big moment in that sense. And uh, then I, I, it, it's hard to say, though, because obviously then Wimbledon, he comes forth and wins his sixth there. We'll talk about that in a minute, I guess. But I don't know. I... I don't know how to put my finger on it because I still feel like we have, we still have to wait. I mean, it's unlikely, but Nadal has been such an, a uh, unassailable clay court player. There's never been anything like his dominance on the clay with the 13 French open. So it, it may be that he's got another one left in and maybe not. So I still think we need to let the story play out a little bit. If they stop today, no doubt we would all put Novak on the top based on his record, based on a winning head-to-head -head career record over both Federer and Nadal. But uh, it could be that we will look back on Roland Garros, yes, as a, as, a, as a critical moment in the sense that that's when he completed said Again, there's that outside possibility that Nadal goes over to Australia this, this coming year in, in a month's time, and, and, he, and he claims a second Australian, and suddenly he's, he's, he's taken the lead again for most majors. So we... We have to let that story be completed. But certainly as it stands now, it, I think if Djokovic does end up on the top of the heap in most people's minds, 2021 will, be, will have been one of his most important years by winning the three majors and catching the other two icons it, with 20 majors apiece. Mm -hmm. Sure, definitely. We wanted to mention as we kind of move into the rest of the season that 2021 was also a big season of breakouts. Like at the Australian Open, we had Karatsa. And then when we went into Miami, I think that is when we kind of saw a taste of what a no big three era could look like. Yeah. So we had no big three present at the masters. If in case you remember for the first time since 2004, and no. we saw her catch and center make big breakthroughs. So we saw a lot of diversity in the masters 1000s winners this year. And, you know, what does this signal about the environment of the ATP tour in a post big three era, you know, reaching that like diversity in the field of players that succeed in the sport? That was an exciting development to see Sinner and Herkosh. I, I think we must keep in mind there was Djokovic wasn't there and there's no mm -hmm. doubt. It feels a little different. No Rogers. That inevitably, we were going to get this kind of a breakthrough, a confrontation in the final. But there's also it was clear, as we saw, because, you know, they, they both appeared in the year end championships at the end of the year. Herkosh was able to get into the field. Sinner, Sinner got it in as an alternate. So that, that was a, definitely a sign of things to come. And you're right. The Masters 1000s gave some of these players a chance to sh show what, that, the, that the future is coming and it's coming quickly. So I, I do think it was an exciting year in that respect. And especially that one in Miami was, was noteworthy because they're both, they both had excellent seasons in 2021. Mm -hmm. And Burkosh with his big serve and his, you know, moves so well from kind of his size at 6'5". And then you have Sinner, who's just a, 
explosive ball striker who's just trying to harness it all right now. So that, that I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. I wish that final had been tighter, by the way, but yeah. it, was just, it was great to see them competing for that title. For sure. And, you know, before we kind of move into the clay swing, kind of going into the ATP politics a bit here, we saw at Miami, Vasek Pospisil have this sort of outburst on court in one of his early round matches. He seemed sort of outraged about, and, you know, obviously Pospisil is one of the co-founders of the PTPA. Um, He seemed outraged about some meeting he had with the ATP chair just the day before about his efforts to unite the players. So Josefina and I, and I think along with a lot of the tennis world and tennis fans, have been generally confused about these tensions between the ATP and the PTPA because there is a lot of behind the scenes going on there. So, I mean, that's what we kind of wanted to ask you, like, what is really going on between tensions between these two groups? And, you know, what do you think about the PTPA's mission? Because the two of us have talked about on the podcast, it does seem like they have some pretty, you know, um, honorable Uh, goals here and there are aspects of the ATP's governance that do need to be changed so kind of what's going on with this whole situation yeah I'm not surprised you're confused because I'm confused (laughs) join the club now I I think that you you summed it up well they have admirable goals I think this is an area where Djokovic deserves tremendous credit why should he want to even be bothered at this stage of his life trying to break all these records and his quest is not, has nothing to do with himself, with the PTPA. He wants it for the, for the rank and file. He's looking to give more players a chance to earn a good living from this game. Mm-hmm. So what it is, is I think it's a different philosophical track. The ATP is more united with the tournaments. Djokovic and the PTPA, they want to do, they want something that's really entirely based on the players and their aspirations and their, what they're motivated to do. So it's a, and I, I'd hoped that maybe the ATP would uh, try to find a way to accommodate them. It just hasn't been possible because I just think they're not willing to, to redefine their structure and, and their purpose. They feel they're doing it the way they want to do it, and they're going to stick with that. Now, what makes it complicated is that you didn't have Nadal and, and Federer sort of follow suit with Djokovic. They, they're, sort of, they're a little more conservative like politically, I guess. So I think had they gone along with Djokovic, mm-hmm. the, the impact would have been great. However, I think quietly and steadily, they seem to be making inroads. So I, I, I think the next year or two is going to be really fascinating to see where it goes. Now, they, the, the other thing to add is that they, don't, they definitely seem to want to go their own way. Uh, in that sense, they're like the ATP. They don't want to incorporate with the women. There was a stage where it looked like they would, but I haven't mm-hmm. heard talk about that. But okay. I do admirable that the goal of Djokovic and Pospisil and, and others and Isner at one time, I don't know where he stands now, Isner mm-hmm. seemed it as well, is that there's always been a debate going back to when Open Tennis started, how many players can earn a living? When the ATP started in 72, people like Donald Dell and Jack Kramer who founded it, they, they tried to wrestle with how many players do, do we have an obligation to support? Is this about letting 100 people earn a living, 75 people. Do we really want to push this to 200, 300, 400? And, and initially, I think the feeling was more to keep, they, they, they didn't have to go way down into go, go to the lengths of 300, 400 supporting, because they couldn't do it. You couldn't be looking at supporting 500 players. But I think Djokovic and this group feels you can and should. And it's going to be interesting to see where, 
where they end up and and how much whether they can meet those demands so that, because obviously as, as you two know from following it's very tough for these players anybody who's ranked under 75 in the world they get down to the range of 100 getting into tournaments qualifying for the slams being able to get into masters 1000s and just being able to earn a decent living from the game with all the travel costs and and coaches etc so I, I think it, I think it'll sort itself out sooner or later, but this was an interesting year and we still, none of us know the full extent of where they are with uh, PTPA. We still don't really know how far they've come and how much money they've raised and exactly where it all stands, but we're going to find out. I'm convinced a lot more in 2022 than we know now. Yes, for sure. Because we saw, we saw that big statement from Djokovic and Pospisil at the 2020 US Open, and then kind of a little bit of silence after that. Then we had another outburst at Miami, and then more silence after that. So it's very inconsistent in how they present it to the public. But um, I mean, like you said, I'm sure things are happening behind the scenes. So... Um, yeah, so now we're going to move on to the clay swing, you know, of course, including Roland Garros. And we're going to talk about Tsitsipas, actually, because, you know, he had that Monte Carlo, when the Masters 1000 title. He made the Barcelona final, and, you know, there's that epic final match against Nadal. And then he had the Lyon title as well, and he made the French Open final. So this was when Tsitsipas really showed some improvement in you know those bigger tournaments and that consistency that we were lacking from him before so uh what did you make like of course he showed maturing as he um showed this consistency consistency throughout um uh, a big range of tournaments but what did you make of his loss to Djokovic after being up two sets that was a strange match because Djokovic I thought should have won the first set and he served for the first set and got broken and then lost it in a tiebreak after having a set point in the tiebreak. And Tsitsipas made a remarkable flick forehand winner off a deep return that was astounding. So he gets a first set, goes to Tsitsipas that could have gone either way. And then obviously we saw Tsitsipas roll through the second and you expect him to close it out from two sets to love. However, we'd already seen Djokovic do that against Musetti in, in, in two sets down. And he come from a set down to beat Rafa in the semis and, and, uh, you know, he's such a great competitor and he's so hard to beat over best of five that once Djokovic turned the corner and won this long game that gave him the service break up in the third set, then you began to think very, you could see that he, he now had taken control of the match and he rolled through the fourth. Sitsipas played a good fifth set, I thought. He hung in the fifth set. It was a one break for Novak and Sitsipas kept fighting hard to the very end, but it wasn't enough. And I don't think he collapsed. I think physically something came out of him a bit. I think Djokovic began to get to his legs over the course of the third and fourth sets. And then there was a little bit of a resurgence of energy in the fifth. Uh, and so it was a tough loss for him to be, to be sure. But obviously Djokovic being the big match player that he is, it was no disgrace. You described the Sitsipas clay court campaign beautifully because it was, he, 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 he it, that's why it was no shock that he was in the finals and on the verge of winning the title because Played so well all, th all the way through the clay court season. Surprising thing to me about that is that I think him as a player likes to come forward. He's got a great transition game. He's got a beautiful back, and he likes to attack when he can. He's more comfortable at the net than most of these guys. And yet here he was playing his best tennis of the season on clay. And I find that very encouraging for the future if his arm heals and he can get fully healthy yeah. again 
coming year because it, it is, he's clearly someone who can prevail on all surfaces. And we didn't see the best from him the rest of last year. It was an unhappy time for him for a variety of reasons the rest of, of, of the 2021 campaign, yeah. but right about what he did uh, during the course of the clay court campaign. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, he's kind of come forward in this like quartet of players, you know, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev and team kind of came into it together. So do you see like this clay season, of course, he really asserted that maybe this is his surface, but do you see him as having more or less potential than Medvedev or Zverev? Because we've seen them consistently throughout the year, but then Tsitsipas kind of made this huge breakthrough during the clay swing and then kind of you know, fell a little off for the rest of the year. Yeah, I think he did fall. And some of it was mental. And obviously he got himself embroiled in a few controversies like the match in Cincinnati with Zarev. And that was all very unfortunate, being accused of cheating and mm-hmm. supposedly texting his father from the locker room. And that was all unfortunate, carried over to the open with the Andy Murray match. And Murray was, was quite infuriated with him as well for leaving the court long bathroom break. I think those things really got in the way of his tennis. Uh, but no, it's hard to say. I, I feel like they're a little bit, uh, they're a leg up on him in a sense because Medvedev has won his first major now. Mm-hmm. He has the confidence and he's got such a big first serve. And uh, so he's now established. And then you have Zarev, who's who I believe when he's at his best, it might be the best of the trio. Uh, I just feel like, you know, he's got such a great first serve. He's, he's come to terms with what, the second serve now, he seemed to find some balance again after having the, what I might call double fault-itis for a while. <laughs> yeah. And which was, was a shame because he was just couldn't make up his mind between hitting 130 mile an hour second serve or an 80 mile an hour second serve. And he's found a little more balance and he comes in now with a heavy kick. And toward the end of the year, when when he played so well at the year-end championships, you know, I mean, that he hardly served, he served maybe four or five doubles the whole week. It was remarkable. So I'm, I'm encouraged by him because I think he's got, you know, such great all-around attacking ability. And uh, Sitsipas is a shot maker. He's, uh, he, he's maybe the most well-rounded in the senses of his ability to come forward and his technique on the volley. And he's got an underrated first serve. I put him just a shade behind the other two because it looks like Zareb is absolutely on the verge of winning one of these majors. And Medvedev has done it already. But, I, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if Sitsipas, again, getting back to the health of his arm, if he's got no physical ailments, that he also comes to the forefront this year, too, because he's got those high ambitions and he has the game to back it up. For sure. Um, so, yes, we did. The play season is chaotic and exciting as usual, but then we also have that little a little bit of the summer that is the grass court swing, which I thought was pretty interesting because one of my favorite players, Matteo Berrettini, his breakout was kind of what defined that season on the ATP. Stop a second. If you don't mind, just don't, don't go so fast. Tell me what you like about Berrettini. (laughs) Um, I'm not saying that skeptically. I'm just curious to hear. Well, see, the thing is that in 2020, kind of at the beginning ish of the season, I was like, I, after the 2019 U S open, I was like, wow, this guy, you know, made this 
these big inroads. This is super cool. He wasn't hyped up, I think, as much in his early years as people like Zverev or even like Borna Chorich, for example, who was so hyped up when he was coming yeah. on, but faded away. So he was like one of those names that was kind of in that age group, but I hadn't really heard of. So I was like, I didn't know about this guy. So I decided to cheer him on throughout 2020. He had an abysmal 2020. So I felt bad. And then I was like, I'm not going to give up on him yet. So in 2021, Josephina remembers this so clearly when he had those great wins at the ATP Cup versus Dominic Team, And I think he had other good wins at the Australian Open before having to retire. I had some hope come back. So since then, I've kind of stuck with him. And I, I'm obsessed with his forehand. I love forehand. So that was one reason that I decided to stick with him. But and he also happens to be dating one of my favorite WTA players. So it was like a perfect full circle sort of reason for me to be a fan of his. Now, those are all good reasons. Now, listen, he's very charismatic and uh, he, very captivating for the crowds. And, and he's popular everywhere he goes. And he's demonstrative and he emotes a lot. I, I, I think he, he, it's, it's easy to see why he'd appeal to you and a lot of fans. <laughs> and he made yeah. He made real strides. I think the most unfortunate thing for him, he he had to play Djokovic in the quarters. At every single, yeah. And it's one thing to play him in the finals of Wimbledon. That's a final at least. But the mm -hmm. other draws, were, his draws were not great. Maybe he could have gone further. And and he seems, I think he brings out the best in Novak. I think the matchup works in Djokovic's favor. But I do think Berrettini was, was really... Uh, you know, just beyond the crop we were just dis discussing. I don't know. He's not up there with with the likes of Medvedev and team Zverev, right. but he's not far behind either. And he's right. I, the big question with him is going to be whether he can improve that backhand. I mm -hmm. haven't seen of it yet, but you're so right about the forehand, which is explosive and a, a, just a magnificent shot to watch. And of course, he's got that great serve. And the only one that really can, returns consistently well against him that I've seen is Djokovic, but everybody right. else really at a loss to, to solve that problem. And he's, he, he, he had a great year, no doubt about it. For sure. He was also voted the ATP most improved player of the year. As you said, reaching the second week of each slam and the only player he lost to at the grand slam level was Djokovic. So he certainly had a great season. And I think it's no surprise that grass was the surface that he kind of excelled at with those, with that big serve and, and forehand for sure. Um, but sadly we had some, for Josephina and I, at least, some sad news at Wimbledon as well with, with uh, our grass court uh, maestro kind of not having as successful of a season as he usually does. Yeah, so... Talking about Mr. Federer? Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, of course... Quick, a quick comment there. Sorry, uh, Josephine. I just want to make this quick comment. I mean, I think it, for Federer in the condition he was, who obviously ailing, and having lost to Felix, you know, on, on the eve of the tournament on the grass and yeah, that he got to the quarters in the condition he was. I mean, I think I for fans, it was a nice thing because he could Definitely. have been out at Reno in the first round. He survived in five, but he did that on basically on one knee. And and uh, so it was not a shock when it finally came to an end against Herkosh so decisively in a straight set loss in the quarters. But the fact that he could have done that with the up and down, with the disruptive year he'd had in terms of being able to compete regularly was, was remarkable. Now, of course, doesn't look like he's going to be able to play. He's making it sound as if he's, he'd be surprised is what he said. If he even plays Wimbledon mm -hmm. in 22, he expects to return in the summer. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's exactly the stance I took on it because, I mean, you can't be disappointed with the quarterfinal appearance at Wimbledon. I mean, he obviously had been barely playing all year, and then all of a sudden he plays this Grand Slam, obviously one of his best ones, and he makes the quarterfinal. That's a pretty great result for someone who was as injured as he was that we found out later how bad it really was. And, of course, he went into surgery again. Um but yeah, it's just, there's this huge question around him, you know, one of the best players in tennis, like, is it finally over? We just don't yeah. know. No, you're right. We don't. And uh, he's asking a lot of himself and he knows that he's acknowledged that, that it's, it's a tall order to, I mean, he's going to try to come back again after yet another knee surgery. And, and, uh, and after missing, he'll surely miss the first two majors of the year and probably the first three. Then be coming back on hard courts where you take it's more demanding on the knee than any yes, other. Mm-hmm. So I and then he'll be approaching forty. At that point, he'll be turning forty-one in this in the summer. So it's it's a lot to ask. But listen, he's had a the, the enduring greatness has been phenomenal on his part, and I think you know yes, the, the knee, knee knee trouble started as way back in sixteen, and uh, but. For most of his career, he's been healthy, and I think he'll always be be gratified about that. That he he had a largely injury free career, but it I think his chances next year that the odds are against him making a big impact. If he does, it's it's just an astounding achievement. If he gets anywhere even near winning a major, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, now moving into the Olympics, just a quick recap of the results. We had the bronze medal going to Pablo Carvino Busta, silver to Karen Kachanov, and gold to Alexander Zverev. But um, aside from the tennis here, we want to take this as a moment to discuss sort of how Alexander Zverev, despite facing these domestic violence allegations and the ATPs, in our opinion, uh, kind of disappointing and shameful lack of action towards this, how that has sort of continued to come up in the tennis world around him, but also how he's still been able to profit and thrive on the ATP tour this year because he hasn't had to face any of these repercussions. Yeah. So, yeah. So just a quick recap before we get into the discussion of basically the events that took place. So in August, um, uh, right before the uh, Olympics actually, or Right after, we saw the release of the Slate magazine article written by uh, Ben Rothenberg discussing Olya Sharapova's allegations against Zverev. And Olya Sharapova was Zverev's ex-girlfriend, and she detailed her domestic abuse allegations against Zverev, who, of course, is a top player. And uh, they were further adding to a article that had been previously written on the allegations. But, of course, um, for... Um, Alia to be taking this huge stance against a top player in the world on such, um, uh, like such a serious topic. Of course, was it was really courageous of her to come out and speak about that. Of course, considering since Zverev has been doing so well on the tennis, like on court this year, it's just it was a lot to take in. Yeah. So we wanted to ask you, kind of because Olya was able to speak because of this interview and kind of have that outlet. So uh, in your sort of view of the sport, how has journalism, particularly, you know, in tennis, proved to be an outlet for, you know, those who do, uh, who need a voice, especially in this situation? And how important is it for the press to 
bring light to this situation, especially when you're facing these players. I mean, it's not just Vera, right? We've got Basila Shvili, we've got Tiago Sabath Wild, like these players who are pretty big figures in their countries. How important is it for the press to be there for, for these people who have to go up against them? Difficult. It's very important. I think the problem is 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 access. Ben Rothenberg, you mentioned uh, he did a he did a fantastic job covering the Zarev story, interviewing his ex girlfriend. I mean, he he really advanced the story, and I think maybe he's probably the, the chief reason why the ATP has now come up with a new policy, and they are lo- looking into it belatedly. But at least they've made their their move. It should have happened sooner. Uh, I've been surprised by Zarev. He, he seems almost cavalier about it. Uh, I mean, he, it, maybe because in his mind he has done nothing wrong. Uh, he he d- d- denies all of the charges. I I I think that it's 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 very difficult for journalists to get to a story like that because it's very hard to get to the players. The player, it, those that are involved in these situations like Zarev are not. They're they're not going to talk about it. And they're guarded. And, and so that's why Rothenberg's work was so critical in this area. And I, I think from this point forward, I think the ATP is going to have a, they will have something in place so that not just Zara, but as you said, Basilis Vili and others are also held accountable. And people making these kinds of allegations are going to get a fair hearing. And uh, I, I don't know where this is headed. It's a sad situation because He's such a great player coming into his own, as you mentioned, with the Olympics, where he came from a set and a breakdown to beat Djokovic in the semis and then won the gold medal. And, you know, his semifinals of the Open and the semifinals of the French and winning the year end championships. He really was. He's a great, great player and terrific to watch. But this story cannot be uh, shoved under the rug. This story has to be covered and covered seriously. And I think the journalists have done the best they can. But I think the only one that was able to really break through in a serious way was was Rothenberg. And uh, he's to be commended. For sure. It's definitely sad to hear about. We talk about this a lot. It's definitely sad to hear, especially as two young female fans of the sport, to see these sorts of issues being often brushed under the rug by the ATP. Um, And we were thankful that the WTA took such firm action when it came to the Peng Shui story. But you know, we'll hopefully it'll we'll we'll see some something come out of this investigation that the ATP has said that it has launched. Um, but moving into the U.S. Open series, the U.S. Open has always been Josephina and my favorite Grand Slam. We're native New Yorkers. We play at the same facility and we just love, you know, that environment. So this are you. Are you going to divulge to the listeners what what the head-to-head series stands? Where does it stand between the two of you in your in your duels out at Flushing Meadow? We literally don't keep track. Honestly, <laughs> our duels are more so in between changeovers. We like to have little conversations, and we we our energy is dedicated to our doubles matches and our pickleball matches. If we're being yes. completely honest with you. Huh. Okay. <laughs> Josephina is one of the greatest pickleball players I've ever seen. I so. Am. She she carries us when it comes to that. Um, but in terms of this U.S. Open, obviously, we had Medvedev winning Djokovic with that heartbreaking loss. Um, but, you know, Djokovic, we've talked a lot about this on our podcast, about how we really saw the almost human side of him come out because we're so accustomed to seeing this robotic a- athletic machine sort of 
taking out everyone. But now when he sort of broke down in that U.S. Open final, we kind of saw how much pressure he was under with the Golden Slam and Calendar Slam expectations. And that what matters to him the most in the end was the fan support because the fan support he got that day um, in Arthur Ashe Stadium was the most that I've ever seen Djokovic get. So, I mean, as you've sort of observed the sport and the rise of the big three, what made it so that Novak was kind of always seen as this like outsider, almost sort of villain figure when compared to Roger and Rafa? Do you think he sometimes, you know, do you think he craves be having that support that the two of them do that he sometimes does it? Yes, I do. I think a big part of him does. I think he's learned to thrive as being sort of seen as the uh, as the the intruder or the outsider. He's made that work for him as a competitor, but it's not fun. And I remember him telling the story uh, to a couple of people after the 2015 U.S. Open when he had a very uh, a very dramatic force that win over Roger Federer in the finals that year with the crowd 99.99 percent behind Federer and cheering Novak's errors and really very harsh Mm -hmm. about how his hands were shaking during that match. It was so difficult. You know, you don't expect to see someone as commanding as Djokovic uh, explaining that kind of feeling that that vulnerable. But I think it's been kind of unfair throughout his career. He he just was the last of the three to emerge at the absolute top level of the game. And they were so popular by then especially Federer had a big uh, head start on him with winning Wimbledon in 03 and even going back to beating Sampras at Wimbledon in 01 on the center court. And I, I, Roger was, he's the most universally popular player I've ever seen. And then Rafa was never far behind. And it got to the point where the, the Roger fans could accept him losing to Rafa. That was the, that was the one guy they would, they were all right with that happening. In other words, Anybody else don't don't come near us. But if it's Rafa, okay, and vice versa. But mm-hmm. somehow, he was the intruder, and it's, he's had to play that way his whole career. So yes, this was a singular moment in his career. Uh, I think he might have preferred having a few more, having that crowd be more evenly divided and winning the title. But it was such a nice consolation prize for him, right. given given that physically he just wasn't prepared, physically or emotionally. He, He'd finally run, he finally hit the wall that day after a difficult open where he was, you know, often dropping the first set as he did to Brooksby and obviously went down a set against Berrettini and and down a set against Zarev and he went five with him. The, the matches were a struggle, but he kept pulling them out. He kept rising to the occasion. Finally, there was nothing left that day. Now, the irony, by the way, of what happened, what you're describing, and then Novak crying into his towel there at the last changeover was that he didn't know that Medvedev was starting to cramp. Medvedev hid his cramping so well uh, that none of us really knew it. And and Daniel explained after the match what was going on. That could have gotten very dangerous for him if Djokovic somehow managed to climb back to five on the third. But no, it was a it was a very gratifying moment in his career uh, because he just so seldom gets that kind of support. And Mm -hmm. I will add this. I think we all know he smashes rackets and has his moments of anxiety and sometimes brings things down on himself in a way, you know, he leaves himself susceptible to that kind of criticism, but I've never seen anybody at the upper levels of the game lose with more grace than he does. It happened with Medvedev that day, he hugged him at the net, his post-match reactions, the way that he talks to his opponent up at the net after they've beaten him when he's enormously disappointed in the loss 
and what he has to say in the press conferences to follow is to me has has been superior to anybody else I've seen in the upper levels of tennis. And, and that's going back 50 years. And I don't think he gets nearly the credit he deserves for that. That was a nice moment, though. Very nice moment in New York uh, to at least have them shower him with affection on a day when when he was hurting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was so interesting to see that side of him. I remember as I was watching the final, I I was looking during the changeover right before they went to the commercial break. I was like, is he is he crying? Because I couldn't tell, honestly, because the camera was pretty far. But then I saw that he was and I was I was shocked, honestly. I'm agreeing. It was. It was shocking to all of us. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to talk about, you know, Medvedev. Obviously, he took the title. And I mean, that was huge because it's kind of like finally that new generation like I was talking before that like quartet of players one of them finally he was the first to take the title we saw him in finals before of course and we've seen Zverev and Tsitsipas in a final before at a grand slam but then he Medvedev actually ended up taking the title so again does this put him a notch ahead of Zverev and Tsitsipas in terms of potential or kind of like Osaka, does he need to work on making his game more adaptable to other surfaces? Because obviously he's excelled on hard court surfaces. That's the, you just put your finger on the pulse of it. I mean, if he can manage that, he did a lot better in Paris this year. He never won a match there before at the French open. And then he gets to the quarters and lost to Tsitsipas, which was a bit surprising because Stefanos has had so much trouble with him in the past, but still, that was a step forward. At Wimbledon, he lost. A, it, he was a little unlucky in his loss in the fourth round, too. Yeah. Because he's up two sets to one against Hercosh. They stop it for rain. He comes back the next day. They move it to the center court and he loses. So I felt like he was, I think the grass court progress will come quickly enough, especially with his serve. And on, as far as the clay, I, I thought that was definitely. He finally, I think some of this is in his mind. I think he can play great tennis on clay. There's no reason with his game that he can't. So I do think we'll see him make the strides. And yes, so it gives him, he's got a slight edge over the other two. I just think Zarev is so talented that inevitably he's going to get on the board at one of these majors. And he's also, he's, he is an all surface player. We, 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 he, he doesn't love the grass yet, but he'll get there. He doesn't like the lower bounces on the grass. And he's talked about that. And why he lost to Felix at Wimbledon but I think it's going to come for both of them and as far as Sitsabas, that all surface ability is there and I think this year is going to be important that he that he back up what he did at Roland Garros and at least be in another final Uh, but it's exciting to see what the three of them can do on top of team who is who has a major himself granted it was a surprising one at the 2020 Open and he he had to come back from two sets down to beat Zarev in the final, but he's, uh, you know, he has a confidence from that. And even though this year was a wipeout because of his health and first his mental health and then his physical health, hopefully he'll be back in the forefront as well. And so it could be a, a really a compelling time for the men's game these next two years. Yeah. And it's definitely been interesting to see how, Twice in a row, the U.S. Open has been that Grand Slam where we've seen those breakthroughs from those players. So it's definitely, I mean, they probably have more of a liking. It's not necessarily that they have more of a liking to the hard courts. Maybe it's something about the atmosphere, honestly. There's so many things that go into that. It's such a strange formula. Yeah, it's hard to say why that's occurred. I mean, obviously, we'll never know if Djokovic hadn't gotten disqualified in 2020, whether whether that would have happened with Dominic, but he took full advantage. and. 
And then obviously Medvedev this year, you know, some of it is this time. It, it, there, there are a lot of variables there. And I do think we could see some breakthroughs at other majors as well. And obviously we nearly did at Roland Garros. Mm-hmm. So now that we've kind of covered the U.S. Open, we're going to get into, you know, more recent events, the indoor hardcourt swing. So, of course, we had the ATP finals in addition to the next gen ATP finals where we had Carlos Alcaraz defeating Sebastian Corda in the finals. So both Alcaraz and Corda have definitely been very involved on the pro tour, especially recently, constantly testing their capabilities and levels. And it's basically, is it a different kind of tennis when you know next gen is pitted against each other versus when they are matched up against players with more experience on the pro tour that's hard to say i mean all, all i know is I, I like your summation and i think that those 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 two guys are just their future is limitless and and i think alcaraz to beat corda in straight sets that's a funny format four game sets tiebreakers at three all uh, that, that that's the unusual aspect of them playing each other in the next gen finals is the format is, is not something they're going to experience anywhere else. But I do think Alcaraz's match with Tsitsipas at the open was most exhilarating of the year. It wasn't the best played match. It was very well played, but it was, I think it, the spectators found that so gripping and, and they were, they were so impressed with this kid's poise and artillery the explosiveness of his game and, and, and the determination. And obviously eventually that he found a way to win down to the wire in five sets was spectacular. And I, I, I think the, that he might be the most intriguing player to watch in 2022. I don't think we're going to see him win a major yet, but I think he's going to, I think he's going to finish the year in the top 10 in the world. And uh, I, I think he's that good. I just think he needs that much, a little more match playing experience. I'd be very surprised if he didn't finish somewhere between, say, seven and 10 in the world in 2022 with, with the combination of his temperament and his talent. He's, mm-hmm. he's a great player and he, he's, he, he has the intangibles. I, I think Nadal would tell you privately. He doesn't say too much publicly. He's very kind to him and he's a countryman and he likes him. But I think I think Nadal, just based on a few remarks he's made along the way, believes that this kid is destined for greatness. And Corda, by the way, terrific temperament. His father was a totally different kind of player, by the way. You two are too young. It's before you were born. But Peter Corda was a part of the Sampras era and he won the Australian and he he he. Uh, he beat Pete at the 97 U.S. Open and had a great match with the Wimbledon that year. He was a left hander, totally. He didn't play the percentages like what I love about his son. What I love about Sebastian is that he's he he's just so good all around and so poised. Got a great match playing temperament. And I, I think although he lost that match decisively to Alcaraz, uh, that was no major setback. He's going to be he had some injuries this year that kept him made him finish the year, I guess, 41 in the world. But next year, he's going to be top 20 in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I just Finn is a huge Sebastian Corda fan. Yeah. Are you? Yes, I am. With, with good reason. He's a good kid. He's a very likable kid and he comports himself so well and and had that nice run at Wimbledon where he lost the heartbreaker to Hatchinov, but still, and then he got sick at the open, which is a shame. So again, yeah. I think with some luck he would have finished this year easily inside the top 30 and maybe 25. But next mm-hmm. year, he'll he'll I if he stays healthy, uh, great things are going to happen to him. 
Yes. Right. And on that topic of staying healthy, we, we kind of wanted to round out our discussion with a topic that has come up recently, um, at least from what we've seen on tennis, Twitter and the likes. But the ATP season is pretty long. Um, we saw two alternates take the place of Berrettini and Tsitsipas at the ATP finals because they pulled out of injury. And, you know, that's not a coincidence. Right. And even the players who were playing Davis Cup, for example, couldn't end their season until mid-December. Players like, you know, Medvedev and Rublev stand out to me like Rublev hasn't had any time to rest, especially after playing that exhibition event. So, you know, there is a lot of consistent and constant, you know, high level tennis that you have to keep playing in and out, especially, you know, both at the ATP level and the challenger level, which sometimes goes unnoticed. But kind of as we're seeing kind of burn out both physically and mentally, uh, do you feel that, you know, the ATP calendar needs to be reevaluated a little bit? I mean, for me, at least what was most striking was that Davis Cup came after the ATP finals. I, I thought that was, you know, really extending the season um, very close to Australia. But should it be reevaluated a bit? Is it too long? What can be done to sort of help players in this in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I think most of us feel the way you do, have felt that way for a long time, that WTA managed, has cut this, has a slightly longer offseason and they try to get their year end done in October and give them more time. It is a problem because you got so many countries involved in the Davis Cup and, the, and, and a lot of players, some of them skipped it. Uh, Medvedev and Djokovic played and, and that was, that, that I was glad they supported Davis Cup, but it then extends the season. It's, it is too long. I just don't think there's been enough of a push. I think if the players wanted to get a change, they probably could. And yet they haven't done that. So what they've all tried to do is, I mean, you saw Zara stayed away from Davis Cup is that is to find their, find their area like, and Djokovic, deciding that if he was going to go to the Olympics, there'd be no Cincinnati or no Canada. Uh, they find their rest periods. They find their periods to take. That's, that's all they can do. But I wish it didn't come down to that. I wish it were along the lines of what you're describing where the season were shorter. I just haven't seen any kind of strong movement or, or uh, out of a united front among the players to say, we must have this, you must do this for us. And, and therefore, some tournaments perhaps get wiped off the calendar. So okay. unfortunately, I don't, I think for the immediate future, it's not going to change much. And I think it's going to be up to the players to find, make certain they don't like Nadal has, has become as his career wore on. He's been so smart about his scheduling mm-hmm. and Djokovic has too. Djokovic has taken his breaks and obviously Roger with his injuries. And that's what all the top players are going to have to do is find these little windows where they say, you know what? I know all the top guys are going there, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I, I the rest. It's going to be up to them. Yeah. All right. Well, we have so enjoyed getting to recap the ATP 2021 season with you. It's been a pleasure. As we round out this episode, we want to fireball you one last thing. What are you most looking forward to watching in tennis in 2022, be it a tournament, a specific player, a specific story? What are you most looking forward to in the tennis world as we enter this new year? I would, I would say, I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very excited, very excited about where Alcaraz might be heading and, and some of the next gen, Corda and the moves that he makes and Brooksby, whether he backs up what he did at the Open. There's so many storylines. But then uh, I still will probably be looking above all else to see whether Djokovic, what, what happens in the in the race for the 
the most majors of all time among the men. That still kind of is a story that's carrying us more than any because it's not over yet. Mm-hmm. And it just find out. I just found out this morning that Nadal got uh, has got COVID. Yeah, which is yeah. Very bad because maybe that might prevent him from playing in Australia. But I would still say that will be the the prevailing interest to me will be that race. But that not far behind are going to be this exciting cluster of players. Not to mention all the ones we just mentioned to see whether Zara finally gets on the board. Team comes back and wins a second major. Medvedev uh, backs up what he did at the U.S. Open and claims another and becomes more versatile on all the surfaces. So there's so many things that uh, have captured my interest and make me look uh, look forward eagerly to 2022. All right. That concludes our episode. So thank you so much for joining us, Steve. We had a lot of fun. We were really excited about this. Uh, let me just add, it was a pleasure coming on with, with both of you because you, it's always fun to hear people of, of your age bracket who know so much about the game and are so, so immersed in it, thoroughly immersed, obviously, because then it makes for much more stimulating conversation from my end. And I wish you both the, the best of luck with your careers and certainly with your podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and that is Game, Set, and Match for today. If you liked this episode, please let us know and stay tuned for more. We'll be providing you all the coverage of the 2022 season and, of course, all the tea on tour. Email us at holdontierracket at gmail.com for any questions and leave a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Hold On To Your Racket is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on social media at Hold On To Your Racket on Instagram and at H-O-T-Y-R underscore Tennis Pod on Twitter. Our next episode will be released as the 2022 season begins. And remember, my name is Josefina. And my name is Shravya. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to hold on to your racket until next time.